glorious of events, the Movie Mavericks Podcast. This outstanding program is hosted by two fine gentlemen, Jason and Trevor. Now make it so. MovieMavericks.com Hey now everybody, welcome to a special episode of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. I'm Trevor Anderson, send you over to Jason Rugard, he'll, t- he'll let you know what we're talking about. On tonight's episode, we're going to be taking a look back at the third entry in the Mission Impossible franchise, 2006, uh, critically acclaimed, but I don't know if it's much-loved entry, Mission Impossible 3. This is before they started adding on those goofy subtitles, so this is just plain old MI3, and um, I don't know, I, I before we get into it, did you see this in the theater? Did you see this uh, second run? How did you come across this one? Yeah, I don't think I saw this in a theater. I'm trying to think back on it. Um, I think I just saw this home video. I saw this on opening weekend, and it wasn't very crowded because if you recall, this was during the height of the couch jumping cruise phase when the public had sure. turned on him. And this was evident and more by than just that, yeah. the low the gross. Whole, um, that, that South Park uh, thing that happened, too. The trap in the closet episodes. Yeah, where he tried uh, to get that uh, uh, pulled, or they didn't want to show that anymore, or else he was he was going to bail out of Mission Impossible Three. And I think there was a brouhaha with the South Park uh, fans over that. Yeah, so there was a lot. Of, this was the height of the cruise backlash, in short, and it was directly reflected in the gross for this movie. I think, which uh, opened up with forty-seven million uh, in two thousand six dollars, and it only totaled. I say only, but it totaled at one hundred and thirty-four million here in the states, which was definitely a disappointment coming off the highs of Mission Impossible Two, which was the highest-grossing film of the of the year two thousand. So, definitely considered a disappointment. Um, my personal favorite in the series is part two. So I came into this movie with such high expectations. And I didn't know who J.J. Abrams was other than that he made Lost and Alias, but I hadn't watched either sure. of those shows at this time. And I wasn't To be familiar. fair, you're talking about he, this is his directorial debut. And he would be, you know, the king of sequels in a lot of ways with, with doing this and revamping Star Trek and Star Wars mm-hmm. and taking on these old properties and well, freshening them up. The, uh, I mean, y- you would agree that this is the, the beginning of, the, of what we get with Mission Impossible going forward. Like this is this the is true the beginning point. of Mission Impossible. Yeah, the, the first and the second movie are very different, even though there are, are thematic elements from those, um, especially for the first one, included in these the last, uh, what are the four now? Four uh, was this was that the sixth one or the seventh one that just came out? Seventh one. It was the seventh. So yeah, these last uh, five, I guess, <laughs> movies. But this was the beginning of of really of the franchise, I would say. 
Yeah, as much as I love the second one and I really admire the first one, you could step into the series with this one and have it as a launching pad because of the character of the wife. And my big problem or something I had a hard time getting over when I saw this movie was, and it's not a knock on Michelle Monaghan, but I thought she looked so similar to Katie Holmes that they should have just casted Katie Holmes at that point. I thought it was a <laughs> odd similarity where I couldn't get the the reality away from the the film in that point. Well, he doesn't did want to you, work with his wife, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, neither did a lot of people. She wasn't in many movies after that. Did you have a problem with Michelle Monaghan being cast in this at all? Did you see similarities there? I had no problems with any of the casting in this, no. Um, I mean, it is interesting. Uh, there were... Uh, other people lined up for this, you know, Kenneth Branagh, um, Scarlett Johansson, um, and I think Carrie Ann Moss was also uh, at one point. So I, I don't know. That that also seems like a fine cast to me. I don't think really think the cast made or break this movie, other than um, the fact that uh, uh, you know Philip Seymour Hoffman I feel like is almost unjustly used in this because he's so he's kind of a good ass bad guy man at least he's he's highly believable that he's, he's gonna fucking kill you he seems annoyed and i don't know if that was a, a character it kind choice. of plays into it though but well we can talk about his character overall when we talk about the end of the movie because he probably is just annoyed really there's some behind the scene footage and the, the, the behind the scene footage, Hoffman wants nothing to do with that camera, wants nothing to do with interviews. He is not playing <laughs> the game on any level. So I wonder what was going on there. But as a villain, this is my my kind of entry into this movie is that the first sequence, mm -hmm. it's very intense. It's very with dark, that right? Standoff. I mean, this might be the darkest entry thematically in the whole series. Mm -hmm. in, in what the characters are going through. Uh, I really like that about this movie, though, that, the ebb and flow like that, because uh, it almost and it's almost necessary. This is, by the way, this is a classic J.J. Abrams opening where you just you show the ending first. And this is what he did with Alias uh, uh, and Lost as well, but especially Alias. Show the ending. It's ambiguous, right? You don't really know what's going on, but you, you kind of get this picture of this. And then you go to the beginning of the movie and you go all the way through till you get to that very ending. And then in uh, that plays through, and then it after that you get, you know, the hero does whatever they do to get out of it and, and win. You know, it's a classic Alias episode uh, and a trick that he uses a lot uh, to create a movie out of nothing. You know, you, you kind of get that setup and that payoff feeling, that, but it's not really a setup and a payoff. It's just it's just jumbled out of order. Um, but yeah. I do like that that it starts with a dark moment and then it goes into a super fun light, like comedy esque like spy movie with the the group getting back getting together and like doing their thing and they're kind of out there and they're winning in a sense like they feel like they're on a high and then just to have that bam turn on a dime uh, back into into that darker uh, stuff and we've already been introduced to that it kind of works it's almost necessary well, I don't know if this is necessary. Do we need to know what Ethan does, what his home life is? Is it better just to see uh, Ethan do. climb I'd a like rock? I'd like to know his schedule. I'm, I want to know what he does, yeah, all the time. What's his workout like? My problem with this is that he has the line in the engagement party sequence at the very beginning that I, I don't uh -huh. like that sequence. I think it's it goes on too long. I think it's uh, it's mm -hmm. it's just not very well played by anybody in it. I don't I don't enjoy that sequence at all. I think the only thing it sets up is that he can read lips, and you could have done that in a different way later on. But 
Also, well, that's he all throws just the ice that... away and he has to go to the store yeah, to pick up ice. Yeah. And that's the dumbest that's, excuse on top of it. That, that's what that's for, right? Is to kind of uh, uh, show you that he's uh, fooling her in some way. Or that, like, that's the the setup, right? That she's he's married, but he wants to have this normal life. And, and that was the beginning of it, too. Right? I'm going to kill your wife and do whatever this all this stuff and so it's all just for that it doesn't really have a point <laughs> it to me has too many similarities at that point to true lies in that she really thinks he's this yeah. mild-mannered person who works for the traffic well, yeah office. that's the idea of the spy right the spy who has a double life but that's not Mission Impossible here. That's you're shoehorning in a storyline where, and you're giving a character a backstory that I, guess, I don't know if it's necessary. Really come back to this. I mean, she shows up late in, a, in a couple of the other movies here and there, but really they they're pretty quick to reset this, right? To get to get rid of it. Which makes it so weird that this is kind of the entry point to the current iteration. So there's a lot of things that they kept and a lot of things that they ditched. Uh, one of the main additions here, which I think is very well used, is uh, Benji. The Simon Pegg character is introduced mm -hmm. in this episode. And he's the only new member of the squad, even though he's the IT person, I guess. He's not really even the squad that they reuse thus far. Right. But I do think that in terms of things that were brought in i think billy crudup as his handler if you will is very right. good in this. i think he's almost the cruise-esque but he's like the evil version i know they've tried that in other versions but to me they look very similar they're solid actors when i wish they had more scenes together in this movie to be honest with you well isn't that i mean that's part of the uh what i what i like about this movie is what it went for what i don't like about it is how it executed it you know and talking about that character of his handler who um you know we're just going to spoil the whole movie by the way for anyone watching this we haven't seen it but yet you know it's almost 10 years old uh, it's more uh, no, than it's that old. it's, it's like almost 15 20. years old uh, yeah uh yeah it would be it would be like 17 something like that yep um in any case uh he's really the bad guy phil seymour hoffman's not actually the bad guy this is like a a, a dark knight rises situation that they try to pull off and and for as many people complain about the Dark Knight Rises, like I understand that complaint here. This is not very good switch off, and the whole like, uh, um, you know, Lawrence Fishburne is the bad guy is just nonsense. Like that never, I never believed that for a second. It's no, he's completely ridiculous. Used well though, I mean, he delivers his dialogue well. He's got a couple of punchy lines that I like how he um, does and. The, the turning Ethan into a villain or possibly the bad guy had already been worked in the first Mission Impossible. I don't need my hero being pursued by every agency out there. It's something that they keep coming back to. It feels like but it doesn't. It doesn't make sense in this one, right? Like the the handler is somehow the most powerful person in IMF. He's he's above the director of Lawrence Fishburne, right? He's doing whatever he wants to do. Um, with them and also you see this coming from a mile away like the way they go and get the Philip Seymour Hoffman character um, and they don't tell him uh, the handler guy about it because obviously he would not want them to go do that because he's an actual bad guy um, it, it, like there's so much the, of the dance that happens in this that that's, uh, just leads you right to the to, you're just told basically that this guy is actually the bad guy but how is he able to have like a whole group of people that come in to save the Philip Seymour Hoffman on the bridge, that whole sequence? Like, where do those guys come from? Yeah. Where are the why allocation... is he in charge of them? Like, what is going I am so confused by this. Like, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman in this? Is he says he's not. He's nobody. What is he doing? He doesn't appear to be doing anything, really. This other guy is the guy who wants the rabbit's foot. He's the guy that actually wants to do all this stuff. 
and the Philip Seymour Hoffman character is just some arms dealer guy who's kind of in the mix. I don't, I don't he, understand. I don't like the way they did that. I basically, if you step you know, back, should have just had him be the bad guy and let, let it be that. I didn't, I didn't need this switcheroo stuff. Step back and look at the plot and the Owen Davidson character, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, is being used as a patsy in a sense. Yes. So that he can cover so that the Billy Crudup character can cover up the fact that he's sending this team in to recover the MI thing, but he has to have it look like it's mm-hmm. being a kidnapping so that he tricks them. That's what I'm saying. But he's then, basically the Bane character. Yeah, he, there's way too much manipulation going on here. And then by the time, like you said, that that action sequence happens on the bridge, which is probably the film's high point action-wise, it's it's you've lost. I've lost the plot. You know, I'm just watching things play out in front of me. I'm not really invested any longer. I'm just waiting for it. And then we have a full another sequence in China. And my big problem, I guess, with the movie yeah. is the cinematography. I mean, this has that saturated look. Everybody looks bad. There's really no glamour like shots flares? in this. I not only do not like the lens flare, the <laughs> oversaturated colors, for, for a while. The, the sweaty, the sweatiness of everybody. Nobody looks. I agree with you. This movie looks good. terrible. The um, the way it's lit, like the blacks are seems crushed. Maybe it's just the transfer or something. I, it did not particularly look very good. What'd you watch it on? I watched I, it I watched on our the video account plus. Okay. Yeah. So basically, the, the same. voodoo one's probably the same transfer. To be honest with you, yeah. And it's Dan Mendel who does good work, but I, I, my problem as well is that it's a lot of this film is is least shot and cut. Well, it could have close been close up look, medium shots. How many fucking it, can we some some pull the camera back? It is it is directed fairly you know ridiculously, um, or rather unoffensively, I should say, is how, what it looks like. Except for those lens flares, which to be fair. This is the beginning of the lens flare, so they're not like too obtrusive, but they're there. <laughs> like they're they're there enough for me to go. Oh yeah, I forgot. He JJ Abrams loved that shit for a while. Yeah, it was a motif. Um, yeah. To be to but, be fair for the the look of it though, we're we're talking about a, a movie. You know, transfers the way that they grade these things for for viewing at home, they can look quite different than what they look like in the theater sometimes. But it doesn't, the shot selection here, the way that they cover, there's a very impressive stunt in this movie that gets no coverage or anything. And it's when Cruz in China, when he's in Shanghai, lays on the ground while a semi-truck goes over them. That is shot and edited so poorly, you don't even realize how magnificent that is that he's, it's really him laying there. They Mm -hmm. undersell that entire moment. And that's my problem with this movie is it feels like a television director. I don't, I know Abrams had to cut his teeth somewhere but maybe this wasn't the project and i doesn't this movie feel small oh, yeah. this, this like is the an smallest, episode of alias it's the like smallest I said, down to the possible. writing to the the beats of it this is this really feels like uh like as you say television yeah it does feel small yeah i agree that's why i thought that they didn't they did the wrong thing with the philip seymour hoffman stuff because philip seymour hoffman's playing it big um and everybody else feels like they're minute compared to him, and and it was so much more interesting. I just would I would rather, I would rather this have been more of a Bond type, like a, like a standard Bond film, which is what it kind of felt like it was it was telling you it was, but only as a trick, you know. <laughs> well, this is pre Casino Royale, so the reinvention of Bond hadn't come. So if anything, they're trying to mimic 
the Pierce Brosnan or the, That's the what Jason I'm Bourne. It's more of a standard Bond. Yeah, know. and and I don't mind that about it. It's a standalone story. It doesn't lead to a bigger world. That's fine. That's not the smallest I'm talking about. The smallest I'm talking about well, is know. just the coverage. Yeah. Is just the set pieces. <laughs> Even the the, the action yes. sequence that is in Berlin in the very beginning uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of geography. It's got the 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 air the helicopters going through the windmill feel. It's a cool idea conceptually, but it's not pulled off. I, I very interestingly so it just happens that's the problem with this movie is it just happens and by the time he gets to china i just don't give a shit anymore and that's that wasn't the issue with mi2 which i thought climaxed beautifully on the beach there with the you know the knife fight and the whole thing so i guess looking at these things in comparison to one another is is never a good proposition but man this is such a letdown even revisiting it here i just I find it so dull in every aspect. I really do. I hate to be down on, on this podcast, but man, I wonder what Joe Carnahan would have done with this. Do you remember when that was a thing? Um, I mean, I don't know what they would have done with the him or David Fincher. Uh, Fuck Fincher I doing I, this. I, I really don't think that it would have. Uh, it would, I, Carnahan, I don't know. Uh, if this was the well, this couldn't have really been. This must have been a, a rewrite story, obviously, because J.J. Abrams was heavily involved in the writing of this. So I would imagine. Uh, I don't know what the idea is for uh, a Mission Impossible three that don't involve J.J. Abrams. I don't know. Have you heard of? Uh, there's a like, podcast. What they, did they say anything? Light the fuse, which uh, has become uh-huh. the official Mission Impossible podcast, and they yanked all their previous episodes down, but you can still get them on some things, but I think it's off Spotify. Regardless, they had in-depth coverage of scripts that were written for it and concepts, and some Mm -hmm. of them were very out there, and some of them had to do with AI and things like that, and other ones were, it was like a Miami Vice episode, so. I'd be more interested in what the directors were, because people write, they have people writing scripts. There's a lot of variation of scripts for all this kind of crap that's never gonna see the light of day. But I would be interested in who, like, because there's an attachment to something, then there's there must immediately be some sort of an idea, right? You'd think. Well, I think that they probably had the locations they want to use, like the Vatican and, and Shanghai and things like that. But I don't know sure. if the story I, was, was punctured all the way through or if it was just kind I mean, of closed Shanghai is, is for this Chinese audience, right? Which this was the burgeoning time of that market, you know, yep. the growth period of mm-hmm. that. And uh, that which is now collapsed, it seems like. But this is the beginning of really going for those overseas grosses. And good thing, because that's what bailed this movie out in, in terms of uh, money. Because it just, $440 million worldwide on a $130 million budget, I think that equates to, you know, 130 back then is around $200 million today. So that's about what the new one's going to make. So is this really a disappointment? I, I don't know when you view it like that and inflation wise. Well, I don't think this was a disappointment. Um, I mean, domestically, it didn't have super legs, but, you know, it, it did well enough uh, for a Paramount movie. This is t- about par for the game, you know. Um, every once in a while, you get one that does really, really well, but typically they're uh, within this range. So I don't. I don't know, what, do you, you know, what are you going to say? They're not the big guys. You know, they're not the Warners and the Disney's. They're. The, the Paramounts. Do you know what dates this movie to me more than anything is the fact that he gets his mission from a disposable camera. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's pretty awesome. I don't understand how he's like, because he's holding it way out in front of his face when he looks at it. Like, 
How's he even seeing it like through the eyepiece? I thought it scanned his eye and was playing on his eyeball. That was how I always interpreted that. Um, but oh, when maybe he, I see what you mean, like a projecting on his, his eyeball. Yeah. I mean, there's some funny shit in this movie as far as technology goes. Like, I love the scene where he's doing the, the you know the 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 math on the window or whatever. He's yeah. he's creating the Facebook algorithm. You know, he's just like, what the fuck are you doing? What is this? Like, there was a point in time I forget. But it was uh, throughout the the two thousands. Uh, I think at the beginning, because of that, uh, it's a beautiful it mind. The movie with Russell Crowe. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful mind. Where everyone fucking wrote math on a window like that, and everyone thought that was such a cool shot and such a good way to do it. It's funny to see it here uh, again in a ridiculous way. My my second favorite thing with that is when uh, Maggie Q is going uh, through and they're trying to get pictures of the Philip Seymour Hoffman guy at the. Um, or the gala thing and she has the uh fucking mirror thing that uh you know the, uh what do you call those you're talking about the one when she spills the wine on him at the the gallery and she has yeah. and she's taking but a she pic- has the, the mirror which is the picture thing and she as she walks through it goes makes picture noises like snapping pictures and she's like walking around with this thing like pointing it at people it's so fucking like conspicuous and shit and it's making that noise i mean like isn't everyone like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) well not only that she's supposed to be blending in she pulls up in a ferrari in a bright red dress horrible uh and in that sequence i thought that was funny there is a moment in that sequence too that's bizarre when they are kidnapping hoffman and they got the face switch on and he Mm -hmm. opens up the sewer and he sees Ving Rhames and he goes, what's up? And he goes, nothing, what's up with you? And they just, it's just like a weird exchange in the middle of this movie. Well, I think it's just supposed to be fun. Like that whole uh, sequence, I, that's ridiculous, right? The, what they go through to get that, to capture the guy and get him out of there. It's just nonsense. Like it's the most overblown, like... Uh, plan that you could possibly have had and uh, so I just think I thought that was just meant to be fun and, and a bunch of nonsensical stuff and it is uh, that, that's a fun little sequence in the movie especially because it's it's a set piece but it doesn't necessarily use anything violent other than a car exploding and I think a couple punches yeah. being thrown so that's that's a fun sequence when they had to use the mask you know I mean I think that was I mean that's such a uh, uh, Mission it's a, Impossible. It's a trope. Thing that you have to use it. Yeah. So that was probably a, a good way for them. Like, okay, we'll use the mask for this sequence. Nonsense. Whatever. It'll be fun. And that's something that they lean on heavily in the new ones as a way to get out of narrative uh, corners that they wrote themselves in. Something that the Borns or the Bonds can't do because the, they don't have that technology built into their. Uh, overall makeup i guess because that's part of the the mission impossible lore is that these face switching masks and you can't always trust who you're talking to is the Mm -hmm. real person right Uh, exactly which is fun i'm glad that they brought that back because that was used very very sparingly in mission impossible 2 uh, more so in mission impossible 1 here's a little bit of trivia for you you know who did the theme song for part two do you remember the band do you recall no it was limp biscuit which is of its time right uh, huh. Do you yeah. know who did the song for part three? I don't I, look. I just seen the movie. I don't. I already don't remember the song because <laughs> they don't play it. It got no air. Um, it was Kanye West, and the only it's called Impossible, and the only way you can hear it is on YouTube or if you go to deep in the Does end it not credits. Play in the movie? I was nope. gonna say okay. So I was. That's why I didn't hear. It. I don't because I almost don't remember. I certainly would have remembered a Kanye song. I don't remember that. So he was, it was a big announcement that he was going to be doing the theme song and he was going to rework it and do a remix that got shelved. And then he did a song called impossible, which has nothing to do with the movie, uh, but it's on the end credits. So if you're looking That's for why that, it's impossible. <laughs> and I want to say that there was a big 
a marketing stunt gone wrong where they put like a fake bomb in a couple of newsstands around the country and if it was in your it was like it was like a device and if it was in yours you what? called in and yeah i mean you could look this up there was some sort of marketing stunt gone wrong and people called i mean this is not that long after 9-11 so obviously that's people especially in big cities are very weary of explosive devices and this is back when newspaper stands uh, were i remember that story coming and going in that Paramount being, I think they had to donate some money to uh, some sort of fund, some police fund to to quiet that up. But uh, let's see here. Oh, here it says, oh, so they were, uh, they rigged 4,500 randomly selected LA Times vending boxes with digital audio players. They would play the theme song when the door was open, but the players did not always stay concealed and they came loose and fell on top of the stack of newspapers and uh, people thought they were bombs. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's what you're talking about. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. I do I don't remember that. that, actually. I don't remember hearing that, huh? Um, I do remember also the feud between the head of Paramount, uh, Sumner Redstone, who passed away recently, and Cruz, and making a big deal that Cruz had lost his sex appeal to women because of his antics, and nobody wanted to see his movies. But then there was also the talk that Cruz's very lucrative deal with Paramount was coming to an end and he was using this as leverage to renegotiate a shitty deal. If you recall, Cruz would then leave and go to you, mm-hmm. start take over United Artists, which would uh, produce Valkyrie. And I guess the best thing about that is that it starts his working relationship with Christopher McQuarrie. But do you, I mean, do you think that that his behavior directly affected this? Because War of the Worlds wasn't affected. That was massive for him the summer before. And that was kind of in this timeline too yeah i mean i don't know i it certainly tarnished his reputation because everyone talked about that and it, you can tell well you can tell that it did something because he uh overcorrected for it right he, w- he was completely absent um from from the public eye as much as possible for a while um and i think in, in order just to for people to stop talking about him he just disappeared you know uh so yeah i, I think it did do some damage to him but Obviously, when the movies are, are big enough and good enough, um, people don't care. They'll, they'll come see it. I think there is separation. I don't think that people can, uh, you know, it, it's like when people go, well, I don't see Tom Cruise movies because he's a Scientologist. It's, it's like saying you don't see Ben Stiller movies because he's Jewish. I, it's, or, it's, but I'll it, tell you what, um, yeah, but I actually have heard from people around here, people that I know that do not go see Tom Cruise movies and they ha- because they don't like him and they haven't seen Tom Cruise movies. Like, they stick by that. They haven't seen him. That's to me. It's seems crazy. weird to me. Yeah, because I mean, a movie's a movie. I don't do that. <laughs> I can separate. Yeah, I would it. never do that. I would still hate the person, but I can enjoy their performance. Yeah, one hundred percent. So, and especially in this, because this is such light entertainment. And as I watch this movie, and I'm looking at Cruz running his ass off in Shanghai, and I'm thinking, my God, I'm the same age as him when he made this movie. And this guy is fit as a fiddle, <laughs> sprinting down the sidewalks of Shanghai and the roofs. He did and- do. I did forget about the Tom Cruise running stuff until I saw the watching this movie again brought that all back because he's definitely high stepping it through here, just running as fast as he can. My, we are watching with my dad. And my dad was even like, "Damn, the guy can run, can't he?" And <laughs> yeah. he still can. In the uh, new that one. was his thing for a while. Yeah, yeah. He's still it's still here and there, but it's not as much as it, as it was. Like it was pretty prevalent in in a lot of stuff for a while there. Yeah, even in the first Mission Impossible, when he jumps out of the restaurant window. Yeah, it was very big there. I mean, and yeah. My yeah. question <laughs> uh, in terms of the character and wrapping up just our thoughts on the Ethan character in this movie. 
is he an asshole in this movie? Because he's lying to her the entire time. And if you look at Julia, his wife, the character, and the movie from her point of view, she has no idea why she's being kidnapped, dragged to Shanghai, and a gun put to her head. And he basically keeps Mm -hmm. telling her, I'll tell you later, I'll tell you later, I'll tell you later. And then the movie ends with him beginning to explain it to her, right? When they're leaving Shanghai, and then she knows and meets his co-workers, and everything's all good there. But... 99% 99% of this movie, he's lied to her. She's a very sad character to me in the Mission Impossible franchise. I, as much as any character that lies to people is an asshole. Yeah, that would be the part of the spy thing, right? Don't you have to do what you have to do? I don't. But even true lies. I don't know. And he doesn't do it to put, yeah, but he doesn't do it to put her in danger, right? He's not, he's not doing it to hurt her. He's doing it to protect her. So I don't, I don't know. Just because it doesn't work out that way doesn't mean that he doesn't make him an asshole, right? Well, he's lying to her where he's at constantly. And there's never the scene where he comes clean to her and they have the moment. That's what I always thought. I know the movie runs about well, the a ending, couple minutes longer than two hours. I mean, she hours. does know. They have the ending. I mean, she kills the, uh, she kills the bad guy. It's a montage where he, yeah, I mean, she does kill the bad guy too. I for, always forget about that. And that's how weak this movie oh, is. The, man. the ending of this scene, movie is so weak. He beats oh, Philip like Hoffman they, up with his elbows, holding his head with a migraine. It's I awful. Know. And he's like, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, you got four minutes. Like twenty minutes later, he's like, get this thing. I'm, you know, you gotta shock me. It's just, it's one of the worst endings. And then after telling you that Philip Seymour Hoffman's not the the bad guy, this other guy is. And he's basically just a fucking weenie, and he just gets killed. He's just shot right away. There's no big ending to this. I, I, I hated the ending on this movie. And Eddie Marsden's in this as one of the henchmen who some might remember as the bad guy or one of the bad guys in the Sherlock Holmes movies. Uh-huh. He's a great actor. He is so poorly used in this. He should have been much, you know, the second in command should have been more heavily played. I think of Will Patton and John Travolta together in the Punisher movie, and that's not a great movie, but that's a great combo of henchmen and, and second in command. And that's what this movie's really missing too is, but then again, then you have another villain who doesn't support anything going on in the story because the story is not about the villain. Yeah, it's know, about because they had a hidden villain. Yeah. It's a, about the, yeah. the bad guy with, you know, in our midst, in our sight, <laughs> in a plain sight. So, yeah, I, uh, yeah. And there's a lot of issues with this movie in general. I, I really thought for the most part, it's not that bad of a movie. It's fine to watch, but it is, one of the more it, it, I don't think it's the worst in the bunch because I really think number four is fucking horrendous but it is ultimately very forgettable but but it does give us that uh, it does give us the modern franchise uh, as we know it and some really good movies came out of it so I'm so glad this movie exists I, <laughs> I actually, just wish it was better I like this more than four if I had to rank the movies I would say uh, two five one six Seven four is how I would go because I, I just don't like the Ethan character in part four. I don't think it's written. And that well. I think is respectable. Yeah, oh, he's horrible in four. I find it hard to get through because um, they they introduce him in such a douchey way, and then he's just he's just horrible that whole movie. He's not the normal Tom Cruise character. He's super douchey. Well, not to get off on a tangent about part four and the problems inherent yeah. with that, <laughs> but also that's the Renner beginning where they try to shoehorn Renner is as possibly the next guy and. That goes That's nowhere. True. He's not even in the, the franchise anymore. So that was a dead idea of the time. And that was 
the direct result of the, I think the. And now Cruz says, what, he's going to be making Mission Impossible movies till he's 80? Not if the audience doesn't show up. I hate to tell people that. <laughs> That's a major component of all of this. Well, it would be fine. If, if this one's as bad as you say, then it's we've not got a, another one in the pipeline, and if, then we can be done with it. That's fine with me. It's I mean, not that it's a bad movie. It's just, it's an overblown, too dense for its own good movie, but with, with some fantastic action sequences as to be expected. Yeah, but that's still the problem with those movies like that is that it's then it really eats into the rewatchability of them. There's not a lot, not very high on this new one. No, because it would, it would if you if you're bored the first time, imagine the fourth time you watch that movie. And I always try to watch something again to see if I miss something because you know a movie can hit you at different times, whether whatever it mind can be state fun you're to rewatch in. Movies, yeah, you know, and you'll but, catch but things. But I prefer. Mm-hmm. Good. I was just saying, I I prefer a movie that's at least lean, or if it's not lean, then at least has uh, interesting things happening in it all the way through, and so you have something to watch. Like, I I couldn't imagine watching Mission Impossible three again. Now there's there's nothing interesting in it. I watched another sequel just the other night, and I was I forgot how deftly it moves, and that's Blade two, and that's a sequel I can put on yeah. and rewatch once every couple years because. It, it's just, it's an improvement upon the original. It's the high point of the series. Well, this isn't the high point of the series. This can be rewatched because it is a fairly light entertainment, even though it's the darkest one of the, of the series. I wouldn't put on Mission Impossible 6 or 7 because it requires so much attention. There's so much uh, diversion going on in terms of the story, too, that this is a 40-minute segment that doesn't even push the narrative anywhere we're just now fucking around and wasting screen time and and money so at least this movie doesn't have that problem yeah that's true i mean to to be fair with these as well like um most of the like the run times on these have been pretty consistently at, at about two hours or a little over um aside from um from Fallout, the last uh, ones here. Yeah, Fallout and this new one. Yeah, Fallout so is a little bit longer, and this one uh, I think is significantly longer. Uh, yeah, quite a bit longer as well, right? So I don't know. That's a that's a bad trend. I think that they need to redo, but it certainly helps in um, going back and revisiting movies if they're two hours or less. You know, it's a lot easier to go back. Um, it doesn't feel like a chore, you know. I watched this recently when we rewatched Mission Impossible 3 um, with my girl, and she had never seen this one, although I took her to see part seven, so I kind of wanted her to have some idea. And she didn't care for this movie at all. I mean, she she thought it was... I'm sure pretty dull and there's, I, there's no there's, there's nothing for a, a woman in this movie at all well I think that that's why they brought in the the wife character but I and to give him a home but they life. don't use her to that degree I mean she's just she just exists like she's actually a, really a prop in this movie well, for, well so is the uh, other Ethan. character so is the other female character the the um uh, oh yeah Felicity um what's her Carrie name Carrie Russell is uh yeah She's definitely used as a prop as well. And something that... So, uh, yeah, I, there's nothing in here for women. Yeah. Something that she was confused about, and I guess that they do clarify it in a line of dialogue, but I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if Ethan's lying to Luther, but Luther does challenge him and say, you know, are you sleeping with her? Mm-hmm. No, she's like my sister. All right, well, did you sleep with your sister? And he just gives him a look. Yeah. He never answers. And I, I know that's that's probably the angle that they're playing, like he's morally better than that, but... I think it would have made it more interesting if this would have been an ex-lover. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit more complicated than that, that he's going after somebody he still might care about. And then she dies and he's, you know. Well, I took that as more meaning she's dead. 
Um, we, we got a little bit of information there. And, and of course, there's a, a, a flashback to where he's training her and stuff. But they don't show any sexual things uh, for that. But I took that as Luther asking him, is this really worth it? Like, we're going to go through all the shit. Is it really worth it? And he was kind of pissed that, that he even asked him that. And especially went to the degree that he did saying, like, you know, sleep with your sister, right? Like, I don't know. That's how I saw that scene. Okay, so we read it slightly different. But it is it is slightly ambiguous to me, at yeah. least, that, the, um, that the, if he did or didn't. And I think that they could have they could have at least put in a shot or two, maybe, you know, like a hand touch, something that would signify there was some sort of intimacy there and not just an instructor trainee. Because otherwise, why does he really, you know, he, he must have trained a lot yeah, of I people. Know. I know. <laughs> I know. I agree as well. But it did feel, that scene at least did feel, you know, more, I mean, really it looked like more fatherly daughter uh, to me, but it was it was more of in, in line of that it wasn't sexual, right? But I don't know why that scene's even in there because it doesn't do anything for the movie other than it proves I guess that it wasn't sexual <laughs> I don't know I think it's also interesting they had the the blonde and the brunette just like they've been doing and these, they always have like the archetype there you know one one over here with the two it can never be two blondes two brunettes it's always like <laughs> especially in the new ones same thing That's Vanessa Kirby Haley Atwell it's they, I mean in Alias it was uh, it was a, a brunette and then a blonde was introduced there you go I never watched any of Alias. Should I? And judging on the merits of this, I don't think I'm interested. Should I go watch Alias? Is this worth? Is it better I like than Alias. this show? I mean, Alias is like, uh, well, Alias is interesting because it's a spy show, and then it turns into Lost, and it gets fucking weird. Um, and it's pretty good. I, I liked all of it. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, I like Alias, but it is it is a J.J. Abrams TV show. It, it gets it starts as a straight up just weird spy movie, and it get and it gets weirder. That's J.J. Abrams for you. Whenever there's you're like, in doubt, yeah, throw in some supernatural or some mystery or some well, there's unanswered. There's like a Da Vinci. There's this guy called Rimbaldi, and he's like a Da Vinci guy, and he's and they're looking for all his inventions and stuff and all the shit that he's made. And so it's very like, uh, it's just fucking weird, you know? Huh. Maybe I will give it a shot. I think I've seen it. I think you and I watched the, the pilot years ago. Yeah. Which was very much like this movie in, in terms of the look and style, so... I don't know. I'm a little disappointed we went back and looked at this because I, in my mind, I thought this was a little bit better than it ultimately turned out to be. But I still think it's my fourth favorite out of seven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would agree. Uh, I, I definitely agree. This is this is bottom of the barrel, um, which really isn't that bad. Maybe that says something for this franchise because it's not like this is the worst movie ever made. So to have this be second to last out of what's going to be eight movies, because I'm sure that last one's not going to be worse than this. They just, the only uh, thing that they held yeah, over something. from this on any of the subsequent sequels is the, the girl and Benji. That's it. That, that he was married at one point and Benji and everything else was retconned yeah. very quickly. Um, interestingly enough. Well, even she, yeah. I mean, even... Um, even the wife, uh, they get divorced right after this and she shows up here and there, but very like they, they basically got rid of her, <laughs> but they're not willing to actually, they didn't really retcon it. Did they? Because they, well, I guess they kind of retconned the whole fact that they had, uh, his handler, like 
it was basically a mole in the thing he took over. Uh, the fourth kind of, movie starts, kind of he's in prison for avenging her yes. death. I mean, that's the reason he has to, has to break him out. And then at the end of the fourth, they, they show you that cameo where she's still alive and he knows it. Yeah. So, But if he knows it, when did he get that knowledge? Because he's in prison for murdering some. You know, it's like, what's... I know. I don't like the fourth one at all. <laughs> I don't. But yeah, they. it's weird. I don't know. This is, It really... Uh, you know, one, two, you know, and five and six are pretty solid fucking movies, really. So, and that's about sixty percent of the overall series. So I can't. At least that's better than the James Bonds for me recently. But they all have the same or problem. The Fast and Furious movies, which feel they, those all blend together for me. Yeah, and I re- I visited so those I don't, not I that long really ago. I can't really pick out good ones. I don't know. They're they're all they're they're all the same. Like I really like the the first one and the third one, but I like those because they are va- pretty vastly different than the rest of them. And from the fourth on, they they just kind of diverge into the same long storyline movie. I rewatched you know? them, and re- over the last year, I forgot completely that part six existed, and they went to London, like totally. Yeah. You forgot that that whole and that's a decent well, it's like one. A, it, but, it, but it's just like a day a day in the life adventure at this point with those right uh, they introduce characters and things but nothing really changes yeah no I, I haven't seen the 10th one yet so I can't make a judgment on that but I would imagine that uh, that series is spinning its wheels figuratively although I guess this if this went on for for another couple movies it would it would really be the same thing as Fast and Furious, wouldn't it? Because it wouldn't. It's becoming that. I don't think they're going to change anything different in in this. And to be fair, like we to be fair, we complain James Bond when they try to change stuff. So yeah, there's there's no winning with us. Maybe fans. keeping the stuff the same. <laughs> yeah, maybe keeping it the same might be the might be a better idea. But you do get bored after a while with that kind of stuff, especially if you're going to be making really long movies and you want them to be like have an epic feeling to them. They have to be big blockbusters. Um, it, it becomes relatively obvious that you're just making the same movie over and over again if you're making so many in a franchise like so quickly. And now that the world is getting smaller, these ideas that these movies are travel logs, like the original James Bonds were, even the Fast and Furious tries to do that. But the Fast and Furious shot yeah. in a lot of the same locations as the new Mission Impossible. So it's it's weird when you're watching something, you go, oh, I just <laughs> saw a movie that was filmed there. And uh, there's only so many ways you can cover a city, you know, and, and it's not novel any yeah. longer. So that that's gone, and in the new one, they do shoot all over Italy. But so what? We've seen it in lots of things. It's not interesting anymore. I mean, I think you're. Uh, did you? They shot all over Italy. I think you maybe saw the porn version. <laughs> that seems. No, they did. They shot on the uh, Spanish steps, just like where they had in the last Fast and Furious, uh, an entire action sequence. So, two set pieces and two movies of the summer in the same location is. Uh, it's regardless of who did it better. It's just. It's not interesting any longer. It's not a novel idea. You know, it's supposed to wow you. Yeah. It doesn't. Well, they're supposed to, they're making movies for the whole world now, so they got to do that, right? Well, I mean, the last Transformers, The Rise of the Beast, was shot predominantly, I guess, in Peru, and it's now the highest grossing movie ever in Peru, which I don't know what the, how the big their box office is, go. but that's a reason why they do these things in the tax breaks, obviously. All- all 10 people in Peru and saw Yeah, it. I think they brought 12 this time. It got 12 people to the theater instead of 10, <laughs> which was what Titanic did, or Avatar. All right, well, that's going to wrap yeah. up our uh, episode on Mission Impossible 3. Are you happy we saw this again? Obviously, I'm a little disappointed. What's your final take on it? What's your hot take? I'm glad we watched it again because I haven't seen it in a long time. And, um, 
you know, I probably wouldn't have watched it otherwise. I, I have no reason to, to revisit this other than if we're doing a podcast on it. So it works out. It's fine. I've, I've seen it again. I caught it on, strangely enough, as we were watching it, I had it on an iPad. I was in a hotel room and the TV was playing and it was on MTV of all things. And the, the fucking movie was playing on MTV. It was like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it, was, it was 20 minutes behind where I was at because of the commercials, but still it was bizarre. So this movie is still getting play and people, I guess, they're still watching it. But uh, this did it was just, uh, play on TBS it was, constantly. It was just the con. They thought it was like the Kanye uh, Kanye version music video, <laughs> so they turned it on. Yeah, <laughs> it probably would have been more entertaining for its audience. But well, thank you guys for joining us. Speaking for Trevor Anderson, I'm Jason Ruhard, and we are the Movie Mavericks. Oh my! Another magnificent episode has come to an end. If you're craving more, set your destination to MovieMavericks.com. Warp nine. Engage. <laughs> <laughs>